just in time for summer, the folks at Epic Brewing have released a new canned cocktail, the Utah Margarita. A delicious blend of real lime and agave, the Utah Margarita is ready to drink by the river or in the park. And here's the kicker, no need to buy it at a liquor store. Pick up a six-pack of Epic Brewing's Utah Margarita at any local Harmon's or Trader Joe's, or visit Epic Brewing on State Street in downtown Salt Lake City. Here is what Salt Lake's talking about. Last week, the United States Supreme Court struck down the consideration of race in college admissions. This ruling effectively ends the decades-long practice of affirmative action, which is when policies or quotas are implemented to ensure diversity in race and gender on college campuses. It's an effort, or it has been, to correct historical inequities in terms of who has access to higher education in this country. So... How could this impact diversity and inclusion goals at Salt Lake's most selective university? It's Wednesday, July 5th. I'm Ali Bayarta, and this is CityCast Salt Lake. Dr. Tamara Stevenson, you are the Vice President for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Westminster University. What is the racial and gender makeup of Westminster like these days? The racial ethnic demographic makeup, and I do have the gender breakdown as well, is uh, sort of parallel to what's happening in the nation as well as the state of Utah. So about 70% of our students are white, about 30% of our students identify other than white, and that also includes international students, but then there's also a section on race, ethnicity, unknown. So some of our students just simply choose to not report their racial ethnic identity. What's the gender ratio like? Because when we think about affirmative action, often we think about race, but gender is also a piece of this puzzle. Absolutely. So for the past academic year, Westminster student population, 63% women, 37% men. Hmm. Okay. So using this data, what do we know about how affirmative action might have contributed to the, this student body makeup? Sure. Well, first of all, I certainly have to clarify that Westminster does not engage in affirmative action practices, particularly the popularized definition of hmm. affirmative action. We have always used an individualized, holistic review process of all college applications. And this is pretty standard across high, many colleges and universities in the U.S. So our process considers all information and experiences that a student actually shares themselves on the application. And mm. that could include their race or ethnicity as a significant part of their many academic and life experiences, their accomplishments and characteristics. Each application is reviewed individually, comprehensively, and without arbitrarily excluding some information, which is kind of what's going to happen now with this U.S. Supreme Court decision. Okay. So if the makeup of Westminster College, though, is currently 70% white, then should the school have been considering something like affirmative action before now? Oh, my goodness. There are so many factors that go into how to recruit students mm. and some students aren't necessarily recruited. They find us, right? We also have to think about proximity 
We also have to think about course offerings. There are so many decisions that go into prospective students and families' choice to identify a college. It's, it, it just can't be reduced to, we need this many of this, we need this many of that. There's so many decisions that go into it. And it's got to be a right fit, regardless of who you are. Well, you did mention that though Westminster has not been employing, you know, quote unquote, traditional affirmative action practices, that sometimes race, ethnicity, gender can be a piece of a person's application that is considered. And the Supreme Court just ruled that race can no longer be a factor in college admissions. So what, if anything, does this ruling change about how Westminster is handling admissions? The actual opinion is almost 250 pages long. Yeah. So it's going to take time to actually review the written opinion to determine exactly what this is going to mean for our admissions processes. So I certainly don't want to to speak further ahead than that. But again, Mm -hmm. our, our admissions processes, our enrollment, our recruiting processes are all thoughtful in terms of, again, creating a student body that encompasses so many aspects of diversity, race, ethnicity, included to create and get us to the highest uh, educational value and benefits of diversity, which is a compelling interest, not only for Westminster, but across higher ed. How quickly is the school going to be feeling the impacts of this ruling? Like yesterday? Like were there meetings yesterday? Oh, yes. There, well, there have been meetings for weeks and, and in some instances, mm. months. And so, you know, our ears are already kind of peaked to basically be advised that, you know, there could be a few ways these decisions could go. Mm-hmm. Here's how to prepare for what some would say the best outcome or the worst outcome. And we basically prepared for the complete removal or elimination of race as one factor. Uh, in the college admissions review process. Well, I mean, you are an expert in this field. And so I'm curious to ask you, like, do you think the impact of this ruling will be felt differently or more significantly at private institutions like Westminster versus public or state schools like the University of Utah or say, you know, Slick? So, yes, we're in such a unique space here in Utah as a private liberal arts institution, private nonprofit institution where we do not receive state funding in comparison to um, our uh, other private school counterparts in the Mm -hmm. state. But yet we still come under this U.S. Supreme Court ruling because uh, Westminster is a Title IV institution, which means we accept federal funds through financial aid. Ah. So that's where the, the connect is. So we certainly have to abide by the decision of the court. But in terms of the ripple effect, do you think it's felt differently in the public education space versus the private education space? I guess the reason I ask is, I mean, I went to a small liberal arts college and I remember thinking, but I'm not sure if this is statistically the case, that the place I went to school was significantly less diverse in specifically racial and ethnic makeup than, you know, some of the state schools that I'd applied to are like the bigger public institutions. And so I wonder, like with a ruling like this that creates new constraints around how admissions officers can consider applications, if we could see an even bigger dent made in 
either the applicant pool or the outcomes at these like already predominantly white institutions versus like state schools that tend to be, my guess would be like at least a little bit more diverse. Part of that question, I think, goes back to student and family options, desires about the kind of experience that they want their student to have. Honestly, there are some perceptions about diversity, right? How do you determine diverse enough? Hmm. Diversity? We'll just hang there because that's what this the case was about. Some will push back on, on what will look like, sound like quotas or critical mass. Should the racial ethnic diversity at a particular institution mirror that of its community? So that's going to look different in Utah than, say, my hometown of Detroit. Yeah. The other thing is, uh, particularly for students of color, right, if there's already these perceptions about a particular institution, Westminster, you know, unfairly gets that that perception. Um, mm-hmm. 150 years we will have been in existence here in Utah, and there's still that perception that it's not, quote-unquote, diverse enough. So, you know, I could see students of color saying, you know, That's why the historically black colleges and universities exist. There are going to be some increased enrollments at those types of institutions, which is, and if we would be more forthcoming about calling institutions what they are, right? We say predominantly white institutions, but historically black institutions. Why are we calling Harvard historically white? Hmm. It's like we want to have this conversation in a a historical vacuum when history is kind of what got us here today. The Living Traditions Festival is back in downtown Salt Lake City, May 17th through 19th. And this is When I Come Alive. It is so easy to sell me on three days of Washington Square and Library Square converting to a global food court, and this festival has truly been one of my favorites for years now. Living Traditions convenes the diversity of artistic traditions, food heritage, music, and art from the many cultures that have made Utah their home. You can expect everything from live music and dance to hands-on workshops, a little shopping, Sundance film screenings, and Bohemian Brewery. There is something for the whole family, and it's free entry. Come celebrate all of the rich cultures that make up our community. Find more information on the festival and view the full program guide at livingtraditionsfestival.com or on Instagram and Facebook at SLC Living Trad. We talk a lot on this show about our city's crown jewels. What are the institutions that open doors in our community and regulate its pulse? I choose Salt Lake Community College, and it is a home for incredibly focused Salt Lakers. Nearly 80% of their students work while going to school, many full-time jobs. If I could do college all over again, I would not be 33 and sitting on these damn student loans. And slick students aren't. 80% graduate with little to no student loan debt or save thousands knocking out credits before transferring to a four-year institution. Every day, Salt Lake Community College is transforming lives and communities through education. If you want to learn something new, refine a trade, or pursue a higher degree for the first time, explore your options at slcc.edu. Study alongside hard workers, save precious money, 
and be one in a class of 19, not 100. Well, you brought up, you know, pushing back on quotas and and sort of this view of how we ascertain how diverse an institution is. What are some of the major tenets of Westminster's diversity, equity, and inclusion plan? And how might this ruling on affirmative action or might not impact outcomes? I wouldn't call them tenets, right? We certainly have a diversity statement that seeks to recognize the educational benefits of diversity. Um, We talk about critical thinking. We talk about uh, voices, viewpoints, perspectives, backgrounds being honored, respected, acknowledged across the campus and in the classrooms to be able to ensure that students um, are able to engage with a variety of, of different perspectives that can inform problem solving, that can prepare them for a world that is increasingly diverse, always has been, but again, it's been this challenge of whose perspectives get highlighted or protected. This ruling kind of reminds us of whose values are most protected. Basically, this ruling says, if you're, when you're filling out an application, you can't identify yourself racially in that demographic section. Sure, you can talk about it in an essay, And for me, that sort of can turn into trauma porn pretty quickly. So when a person isn't fully able to bring their whole selves to an application, I think that's problematic at best, and it is inhumane at worst. What kind of steps can the school take to mitigate the impact of this ruling? We'll continue to support the programs and outreach that introduce Westminster to students throughout Utah and outside of Utah. So we have broad outreach that's part of our admissions and recruiting process. We have the Westminster Committed that started uh, uh, last year. It is a tuition-free program for academically driven students from Utah with a financial need. We have our McNair Scholars Program, and this program is a federally funded effort to increase the number of students from underrepresented groups who go on to graduate study. And then we have our first scholars program. And this program is designed for low income and or traditionally underrepresented first generation students to receive uh, mentor support. First generation is defined as a student whose immediate parent or guardian does not hold or did not complete a bachelor's degree. I am a first-generation college graduate myself, so I'm always proud to hold that banner up. So these are just a few examples. (laughs) These are a few examples of our commitment to ensuring a student population that supports the educational benefits of diversity before they come to Westminster, while they're at Westminster, and when they graduate from Westminster. So, you know, we started off by talking about some of the, the data around Westminster's makeup right now. 70% of students are white, majority female. Um, So no quotas, no specific kind of pie chart approach to building a student body, it sounds like, which is very holistic. But 20 to 40 years down the road, what does the population of Westminster look like, do you think? Oh, my goodness. That is a lofty... (laughs) I don't need like some prof- my prophetic psyche to, to kind of jump in. That's hard to say. Well, actually, it's not that hard to say, maybe, because we're very well aware of Utah's 
changing demographics. Another quantitative point I'll give you that I meant to mention Mm -hmm. is that 55% of our students are from in-state. So with those numbers, if we look at that same pattern with most of our students coming from in-state, compare that to the changing demographics of the state where populations of color are certainly increasing, particularly Latin or Hispanic populations. Mm -hmm. So if we follow that pattern, Westminster could certainly have a higher percentage of Latin or Hispanic students easily. So that that's that's just one speculation I would make. I feel the need to ask this question, given the the age of discourse that we're in. But Why is it important to have a diverse student population? I think that was the question that was asked during the hearings for these cases. Why is a diverse student body important? To start, having a diverse student body allows our students to be exposed to learn that there are people who live differently than you. There are people who think differently than you. There are people who who exist differently than you. There are people who have different perspectives um, based on their lived experiences. We also know that students who engage in in conversations, classroom discussions, um, informal conversations are better prepared for the workplace, better prepared to engage with others who are different from them in work environments where they can't always pick who their teammates are, who their coworkers are. We also know uh, working diversity also increases creative problem solving. And it just helps you make make you a better world citizen. So there are these kind of abstract philosophical, I don't want to say fairy tale, but these, <laughs> oh, it's for the good of the world. Yes. But there are also some very concrete reasons that diversity remains a compelling interest and reality for our students to be exposed to so that they don't walk into a world unprepared or completely underprepared, underprepared for the differences that they're going to engage in. Doesn't mean they have to agree with the differences, but understand that they exist. Dr. Tamara Stevenson, Vice President for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Westminster University. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you having this topic at this time. It is certainly relevant and needed. Throughout our conversation, you probably heard Dr. Stevenson and me refer to Westminster College as Westminster University. And that's because they formally adopted the name change on July 1st. Did you blink and miss it? The change from college to university is actually kind of long overdue since the school's been offering graduate programs for a while now. 12 graduate programs, including two doctoral programs to be exact. The school believes the name change offers greater recognition of the scope of their programs and the prestige of the institution. Now, if you're a Westminster alum and you want to trade your Westminster College diploma for one that reads Westminster University, you can do that. Just reach out to the registrar's office. That is all for us today here on CityCast Salt Lake. Thanks for listening. We will be back tomorrow morning with more from around this city. Bye.